podcast as we syndicate. As a reminder, Wise Up Texas is my platform to inform the South Asian community about Texas and national politics. You can find us on all forms of social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and you can check out our website, www.wiseuptx.com. Last but not least, you can listen to our recorded podcast on Radio Azad on Coffee Mornings with Aisha. Check us out on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. We're on it all. And remember, everyone, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. All right, folks, we have another interview today, and it is with Donna Imam. And she is a Bangladeshi American who is running for Congress in Texas District 21. And Texas District 21 encompasses some parts of Austin and usually the north uh, suburbs of Austin. And it is actually pretty big. And, you know, she is running as a Democrat um, for the upcoming March primaries. And now March may seem pretty far away, but it'll come here quicker than you know it after the holidays are over. So... We wanted to give you all the opportunity to hear from her and learn more about her platform and how she intends to fix the problems that are currently occurring in HD21. All right, let's tune in. Joining us today is Donna Imam, and she is running for Congress. Thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, the district you're aiming to represent, the political party you align with, and what prompted you to run? All right. So um, I actually you know, went to school for electrical and computer engineering. I came to the United States as a teenager and I went to a really rural town called Angola, Indiana. I got my bachelor's in electrical engineering from Trine University and then went to Purdue for my master's. And a little bit about me, I've spent um, almost two decades, uh, you know, with a tech career. Started out as a development engineer, went into product management, led some major multi-billion dollar product lines, including Dell Latitude. Worked at a startup for a while, which got acquired. Started my own uh, consulting firm, uh, consulting on machine learning and AI for Fortune 500 type companies. And then also ran a nonprofit for the last five years, uh, Product Camp Austin. And what Product Camp Austin does is provides free continuing education and product marketing and product management also processes like agile and technology aspects to anybody in the area completely free, um, raised tens of thousands of dollars for that organization and also grew it to thousands of members. We're almost a 4,000 member um, nonprofit. So that's a little bit about me. In terms of uh, where I'm running, as many of you know, Texas is heavily gerrymandered and Austin is sliced into six slices. Texas's 31st district has all of the North Austin or Northwest Austin suburbs, including Austin itself, Cedar Park, Leander, um, Round Rock, and then it goes all the way north through Georgetown up to Colleen Temple, Belton, it includes also Hutto and Taylor. So it's a large region. Wow, that is really big. Very, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's a very diverse, changing population. As you know, Austin's a you know big tech city now. 
and mm-hmm. it's over the last six years, seven years, it's grown tremendously. So it's pushed a lot of folks looking for a more affordable living um, to the suburbs. So you see a lot of young families um, with kids moving up here, looking for a great life for themselves. So that's Texas's 31st district is all of Williamson and all of Bell. So uh, I know you asked me what prompted me to run. So I'm an average, you know, middle-class person with a career in tech, and that's uh, not uncommon for someone from a South Asian background. And what I realized over the last um, several decades is that I've given my entire life to building wealth for businesses and running nonprofits and helping people be successful. And that's something that I really believe in, giving people that financial independence, because Mm -hmm. I think it's key to your ultimate freedom. And what I found after running the nonprofit for the last five years is that nonprofits can only do so much. There's so much left to do and our system needs, you know, it's really broken for trying to help millions and millions of people. Like even in 2007, 2008 in Austin, when we had the lowest unemployment rate, Uh there were many engineers and well-educated people out of jobs for six, seven months, sometimes over a year. And they need a lot of assistance and help to try to get back into the economy and start working again. I think it's not enough just for middle class and upper middle class people who, you know, are actually able to pay their rent and their car payment and maybe even go on a vacation once a year with their family to say, you know, things are great for me and, uh, you know, I'm just going to sit by quietly. And I felt this urge to really have a stake in the community that we live in. If we don't work for the community that we want to see, then we get whatever is handed to us. Right. So that's definitely something that pushed me over the edge. But if I had to sum it up in one sentence, I would say that I think I'm bringing the financial case for what we Democrats believe is the morally right thing to do. And that's my differentiator in the Texas's 31st district. And uh, for the upcoming Texas primary, which will be in March, uh, how many people are you running up against? So I think originally there were maybe almost a dozen people running. Mm -hmm. In the third quarter of 2019 is when I announced. I outraised every other Democratic candidate in that quarter. Okay. And I know that several people have dropped. I think it's down to maybe a little over half right now. So we won't really know exactly how many people are running until December 9th when the filing deadline closes. Okay. And you caught me on an interesting day because I filed today. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So I'm officially on the ballot in Texas' 31st district. That's great. So you are officially on the ballot, and you obviously have a party platform that you're running on. So why don't you tell us, or my listeners, about the three major issues that are impacting your district, And if you are elected, how do you intend to address them? High-level overview. Yeah, so I started out 2009 going around my district and talking to community leaders and organizations trying to understand what's happening in Texas's 31st district. And I talked to both partisan and nonpartisan groups. Uh, I'm running as a Democrat, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that most of our district is really struggling 
with basic things like healthcare and education. As okay. you know, Texas is the state with the nation of people that are uninsured and underinsured, by the way. Yes. And just for your listeners, underinsured is you have insurance, but your deductible is so high that you really can't see a doctor. So we find as we go around, for example, I walk down downtown Round Rock and I talk to the servers in many of these restaurants that work full time, sometimes working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. And unfortunately, they don't have health insurance coverage and they can't afford their premiums. And even if they could, they can't afford their deductibles and co-pays. This is a challenge that's not only impacting people, you know, who you know, may not have really high paying jobs, it's also impacting middle class people. For example, if you get laid off from a job, you don't have health insurance, you lose your health insurance. Now you might may get COBRA. Yeah. COBRA payments are very expensive. They are. And if you're out of a job for a long time, your COBRA expires at some point. Mm -hmm. So if you have a family of four, you could be spending somewhere between 1500 to $2,000 just to get coverage. It's an astounding amount of money to pay when you don't have a job. Think about it. What I believe is that not having this peace of mind of healthcare is actually holding back our economy in a big way because people are deciding not to start a business or do something for themselves. They're stuck in their jobs and they're unable to grow towards their career or whatever they want to do. It's mm -hmm. holding back our economy. So how so do you intend to fix that? So I'm proposing healthcare for all. And okay. healthcare for all is very specific. We hear about single payer healthcare for mm -hmm. all and Medicare for all, commonly discussed by Democrats. My plan is a little bit different. What I'm saying is that look, our country actually has a lack of primary care physicians. Okay. So we need to do two things. We need to incentivize kids in our country to go in and practice primary care. And there's a reason for that. The reason they don't practice it today is that the ROI on primary care is very, very low, meaning the cost of education is so high, the student loans are so high compared to what you're able to earn after 11 years of schooling or 12 years of schooling, okay. which is a lot of time invested. So that's number one. Number two, regardless of your politics, it doesn't really matter. The cost of health is too high in our country. We're paying too much for healthcare coverage. And I'll just give you one example. There's about a dozen studies done there, including left, right wing, and think tanks, and they all say healthcare should cost us between two trillion and three and a half trillion dollars a year. In 2018, we paid 3.65 trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Million people who are uninsured and underinsured. So my plan does two things: it focuses on cutting cost, and number two, it focuses on putting more primary care physicians into the system, so that people get regular healthcare and checkup and, and availability of going to any doctor that they want. And then that reduces the cost of care because now you're not waiting until it's too late or your illness has exacerbated to the point where now your care is very expensive or you're using your ER as your front line of defense. Okay, so when you're talking about healthcare for all, and, and we have been hearing a lot of this different types of plans from a lot of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates, right? And I guess I wanted to ask, is this essentially like Medicare for all, that everybody is going to be under the government plan, or is there going to be a mix of government and private insurance? And how exactly are you planning, like how exactly would you vote? 
it's modeled on Medicare for all. Okay. It is not government um, health care. It is government is the single payer. It keeps all providers, including doctors, clinics, and hospitals, 100% private. But it does eliminate private insurance completely. And what studies show is that when you pull all 327 million Americans into one pool, you're able to average out the cost, you're able to do better negotiating, and you take out the bureaucracy of negotiating with, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever insurance companies trying to, ins- trying to negotiate the same rates with hundreds and hundreds of providers across the United States. Okay, so let me put you into a scenario. Let's say that there is a Democratic president that becomes elected in 2020 and you get elected to Congress. What if that new president, potential president, um, doesn't have the same type of medi- medical or health care plan that you're advocating for currently for your district? How would you vote? Like, let's say they are willing to do a mix of those that can keep their private insurance, but then still offer, um, like you know, Medicare for all. Would you still be still be willing to vote for that? I think my job as a representative would be to go in there and make the best case for my plan. It would be cheaper, and I have a six-page white paper written on why it would be cheaper. And my job would be to go to try to convince them. And as a representative, my job is to bring the best, cheapest, and highest quality health care possible. So I would fight for my plan with that president and try to get them to incorporate what I'm proposing. And the fact is, it doesn't matter how they want to enforce it. We don't have enough primary care physicians. You cannot cover the 80 million people that are uninsured and underinsured unless you increase the number of primary care physicians. That's just a fact. We have to solve that problem. Okay, let's pivot on over uh, to the next issue that you feel is impacting your district. Education is huge. In fact, if you could make really great high quality education available to in our district, you could transform the economy significantly and there's no bounds to what they can achieve. Today, a lot of the conversation you hear about is free tuition. Mm-hmm. Free tuition is not enough. Think about it. If you wanted to go to UT Austin, for example, and you graduated at the top of your class, and let's say you went to Colleen ISD, your parents would now have to be able to afford a place for you to stay on UT campus. We know that Austin has grown and it's extremely expensive to house a student on UT campus. I've also come across people who are going to ACC for two-year classes, and many of them are working full-time. Their parents don't have money to give them, you know, to go full-time and and pay for all their tuition. Bottom line is, we are saddling 18-year-olds with huge student loans, which I believe is a complete Ponzi scheme. You're putting them on these loans and saying you can take out as much loans as you want, and they actually don't have any kind of plan on how these loans are paid back. And when they're graduating, often many of them have loans upwards. Of, that's like a down payment on a $300,000 home in Austin. Mm-hmm. And it's almost impossible for them to get out of this debt. The fact is, education is not and does not have to be expensive at all. In fact, with technology, the cost of education should be going down drastically. And is that how you're going to um, implement your plan is more through technology to drive down the cost of healthcare? 
It's not just through technology. That is one option. We need to incentivize state schools to compete for federal dollars. And I'll give you a really great example. You can go to Georgia Tech and get a master's in computer science for $15,000. That's unheard of for a top 10 program. How can they do it? They can do it because someone's put their head together and saying, hey, this is the cost we want to accomplish. Let's go figure out how to get it done. We need state schools to compete and the schools that can best provide the best education at the lowest price need to be rewarded with the biggest federal funds. That will be one of the options. Number two, the main reason education is so expensive is because schools know that we have companies out there willing to write you blank checks. Much that education is expensive, but leaving any money on the table because they don't have to. I kind of want to pivot over. I was looking at your website and you talked about student debt and you had mentioned this earlier. I'm curious as to how you would relieve the current problem of student debt, right? Like it's over, is it like over a trillion dollars now? Yes, it's more than I think many, many different kinds of debts put together, all of the credit card debt and car loans to put together. So there's a couple of things that people need to know. One is student loan debt is a very terrible kind of debt. There are only two other kinds of debts that are similar to that. One is child support, the other is taxes, where your wages can be garnished. Student loan is the third type. What I'm proposing, number one, is that you would be able to file bankruptcy. Number two, you would be able to refinance at very low rates, at the same rate the government would um, borrow from the, from the Fed. Number three, you could be completely reimbursed for your educational costs and you would have a forgiveness, tuition forgiveness, if you served in underserved and rural communities around the United States. Right now, we have a huge lack of teachers, mental health professionals, social workers, engineers, primary care physicians, all kinds of healthcare professions in rural and underserved communities. If you served in these areas, you would get some sort of tuition waiver or forgiveness towards your education. Other than that, you'd have option to refinance or, or actually file bankruptcy and move on. So that would be one attempt to address folks who already have debt. Okay. And how about the last major issue that you feel is impacting your district? So there's two issues. Um, you'll see on my website, I talk about equal justice for all. Uh -huh. And I want to point out the fact that um, there's a almost 30% um, black American population in Colleen, Texas, which is in my district. And one of the challenges that they have is that um, a lot of people are, have been, you know, have some sort of you know, something on their record and they're unable to find really good in employment. They're, life and they want to give back and be contributing members and they're having challenges. Um, this is this is something that we developed with my community. So when you specifically ask about my community, Equal Justice for All was done in collaboration with leadership around Texas 31st District with Black community leaders. And the third big thing that's on my website is Real Pay for All. And, and what Real is Pay that? Yeah, it's a concept that one of the things you'll hear Democrats talk about is the $15 an hour. And the fact is, you can't live on $15 an hour in most big cities. You definitely cannot live in Austin for $15 an hour. And that's absurd. If you're working full time, you should be paid so you can pay your bills 
and you can save towards the American dream of putting a down payment on a home, and you should be able to retire with dignity. And it's ridiculous to tell people who are working less than $10 an hour or less than $15 an hour job to say, hey, these are starter jobs. Well, if you're working 50, 60 hours, three jobs, or you're a single mom, how do you expect to be able to pay your bills and get further education? If you're working full time, you need to be paid what's called real pay for all. And real pay for all needs to take into consideration where you work and what the cost of living is. And that's how we should create a platform of wages. I'm a huge advocate of workers' rights and high wages, and I think we can implement that. Now, a lot of people will say, well, there's a lot of challenges to the small businesses, et cetera. One of the things we need to understand is that when we pay people, especially individuals who make less than $50,000 a year or families that like make less than $75,000 a year, mm-hmm. when we give them real pay for all, that money goes 100% back into the economy. When they have that extra disposal income, they take their family out and have dinner on a Friday night. They buy a better backpack for their kid. They buy some new shoes. So it actually invigorates the economy organically and it frees people up to do things like start their own businesses from their own garages and their living rooms, et cetera. So we'll actually see a growth in the economy versus the other way around. All right. So you've kind of discussed, uh, given us a broad overview of what your policy platform is about. And you had mentioned earlier that you have probably maybe around six more opponents in the Democratic primary. Am I correct? Something like that, yes. All right. So, and again, we don't know what's going to happen by December 9th, but I want to know what distinguishes you from your current opponents. I think the biggest thing that distinguishes me is that I've spent my career um, solving very large, complicated problems, taking multi-billion dollar product lines and cost reducing them. And one of the things as an engineer that not only have you know, I've been educated in this in this re, in this aspect, but I've also implemented it. Is that we can we take complex, very complicated, large scale problems, we break them down into little tiny pieces, we solve those pieces, and we stitch them back together. And this is a unique skill that I I can bring to Congress. Right now in Congress, it's heavily skewed towards mostly lawyers. You do have a little bit of you know maybe some other types of professions. But we need diversity of roles and professions and skills in Congress. So a lot of folks might have seen the interview of the Facebook CEO, and it really made the United States Congress look um, very opposite to who we are, which is front runner on technology, on the cutting edge of technology. And it didn't make us look like our Congress was up to the task of really understanding what's going on. So I think that is a huge difference. You don't see computer engineers running for Congress often, if at all. And yeah. that's a huge difference. And technology and data has become such a big uh, forerunner in a lot of policy issues. I mean, we see some of the presidential candidates talking about it. I believe Elizabeth Warren is one of them talking about breaking up a lot of these big tech companies. And I'm not sure exactly what the long-term implications would be for that, but it seems to be an up-and-coming issue that's a very hot topic. And I did see that Facebook, uh, well, that congressional hearing where Mark Zuckerberg was there, and it seemed that many of the people asking the questions, the congressional members, seemed slightly confused as to how Facebook worked or how the whole data situation was working out. So 
I see your point about how there needs to be diversity, um, people from different workforces, because at the end of the day, not all of America are attorneys. That would be a dreadful thing. <laughs> uh, speaking as a lawyer myself, but uh, I think it is very indicative to see that if you have different people from different jobs and areas in Congress, it can bring about different types of solutions that maybe one certain sect of the job sector can't always accomplish. So I wanted to end it on on how my listeners can learn more about you and you know your upcoming voting dates. Like when do people need to get out and vote? Yeah, so you can learn more about me at votefordonna.com. That's V-O-T-E-F-O-R-D-O-N-N-A.com. And there's links to my social media, so please follow. But most importantly, we are trying to build out the biggest ground game grassroots operation up in Texas 31st District, Williamson County Bell. And if your listeners want to get involved, we would love to have their support. It doesn't matter if you're in high school. If you can't vote, you can vote. Anybody can volunteer. Every single person. You can't run a grassroots operation without amazing volunteers. So early voting is February 18th, and that's when you want to go vote. And if you go vote, take all your Williamson County friends with you and vote Donna and March 3rd is the actual primary date. All right. Thank you so much, Donna. Uh, Best of luck on your campaign and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone, that's our interview for today. And I hope you all found it informative and remember it is very close to the March primaries and make sure that you are registered to vote. And I also wanted to emphasize that remember that Wise Up Texas is a nonpartisan organization, but we find it very important to highlight the South Asians that are running for office, whether in Texas or across the United States. And furthermore, any candidate that is finding that they would like to reach out to the South Asian community as well. And we just do not endorse any of the candidates running for office, but we wanted to give you all the opportunity to learn more about them so that you can wise up once you head to the polls. All right, folks, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time.